listening to audio from Twin Villages Church in Damariscotta, Maine. If you'd like to check out more resources, please visit twinvillageschurch.org. For, uh, for sharing with us the memory verse for this week from Romans 5, uh, six, verses 6 through 8, and for the truth of God's Word. And I want to encourage the church to, uh, to be working on these um, throughout the week and to continue to uh, be putting God's Word in your hearts. Um, this morning, we're going to be um, in Lamentations uh, chapter 1. We're going to work through all 22 verses. And so as you're getting prepared and maybe turning there, I want to just spend a little bit of time reviewing last week. And we were in, if you remember, Psalm 13, and we're talking about the necessity of biblical laments. Um, and lament helps us um, deal with the tension between the brokenness of the world and God's sovereignty and his control. Um, it helps us to think through the realities of life, and it gives us permission uh, to, to, to grieve. It gives us permission to have sorrow and feel the pain and suffering and to wrestle with all those things. And so God has been gracious to us in giving us um, lament and giving us an opportunity in a way to process through the realities of life. And we talked last week about these four steps of, of prayer and, and complaining and then asking God boldly and then trusting or praising him for who he is. We know that Jesus was um, uh, someone who was very acquainted with lament and suffering. Um, Isaiah 53.3 tells us this, that he was a man of sorrows. Now, when Jesus was in Gethsemane, he was so distraught um, that he was sweating drops of blood. And even on the cross, um, he quoted Psalm 22, verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then we read in Hebrews chapter 3, or excuse me, chapter 4, verses 14 to 16, how he, um, he can identify with our weaknesses. He identifies with, he knows what it means to suffer. He knows what it means to lament. And so as John Piper said, and we, this quote last week, that we need to keep trusting the one who keeps us. Us trusting. And so it's important that we keep God, we keep the gospel and Jesus Christ in front of us during times of trial and suffering. And the book of Lamentations was written after the destruction of Jerusalem, and it was to remind future generations that, that, that Judah had gotten to a point of no return when it came to, came to sin, and it came to God's judgment for that sin. So it's a book that is full, full of sorrow, but it's also a book that is, is, is a warning to people, and not just the Israelite people, but, but to us as well. And Lamentations 1 is specifically is going to show us, right, that there's the reality of this, this brokenness in the world, the, the, the consequences of sin, right, and the holiness of God. So I want to read Lamentations chapter 1 for us, and then we'll, we'll dig in this morning. Lamentations 1 says this, how she sits alone, the city once crowded with people. She who was great among the nations has become like a widow, the princess among the provinces has been put to forced labor. She weeps bitterly during the night with tears on her cheeks. There was no one to offer her comfort, not one from all her lovers. All her friends have betrayed her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile following affliction and harsh slavery. She lives among the nations but finds no place to rest. All her pursuers have overtaken her in narrow places. The roads to Zion mourn, for no one comes to the appointed festivals. 
All her gates are deserted, her priests groan, her young women grieve, and she herself is bitter. Her adversaries have become her masters. Her enemies are at ease, for the Lord has made her suffer because of her many transgressions. Her children have gone away as captives before the adversary. All the splendor has vanished from daughter Zion. Her leaders are like stags that find no pasture. They stumble away exhausted before the hunter. During the days of her affliction and homelessness, Jerusalem remembers all her precious belongings that were hers in the days of old. When her people fell into the adversary's hand, she had no one to help. The adversaries looked at her, laughing over her downfall. Jerusalem has sinned grievously. Therefore, she has become an object of scorn. All who honor her now despise her. For they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns away. Her uncleanness stains her skirts. She never considered her end. Her downfall was astonishing. There was no one to comfort her. Lord, look on my affliction, for my enemy boasts. The adversary has seized all her precious belongings. She has even seen the nations enter her sanctuary, those you had forbidden to enter your assembly. All her people groan while they search for bread. They have traded their precious belongings for food in order to stay alive. Lord, look and see how I have become despised. Is this nothing to you, all who pass by? Look and see. Is there any pain like mine which was dealt out to me, which the Lord has made me suffer on the day of his burning anger? He has set, sent fire from on high into my bones. He made it descend. He spread a net for my feet and turned me back. He made me desolate, sick all day long. My transgressions have been formed into a yoke, fastened together by his hand. They have been placed on my neck, and the Lord has broken my strength. He has handed me over to those I cannot withstand. The Lord has rejected all the mighty men within me. He has summoned an army against me to crush my young warriors. The Lord has trampled virgin daughter Judah like grapes in a wine press. I weep because of all these things. My eyes flow with tears. For there is no one nearby to comfort me, no one to keep me alive. My children are desolate because the enemy has prevailed." Zion stretches out her hand, and there is no one to comfort her. The Lord has issued a decree against Jacob and his, that his neighbors should be his adversaries. Jerusalem has become something impure among them. The Lord is just, for I have rebelled against his command. Listen, all you people, look at my pain. My young women and young men have gone into captivity. I called to my lovers, but they betrayed me. My priests and elders perished in the city while searching for food to keep themselves alive. Lord, see how I am in distress. I am churning within. My heart is broken, for I have been very rebellious. Outside, the sword takes the children. Inside, there is death. People have heard me groaning, but there is no one to comfort me. All my enemies have heard of my misfortune. They are glad that you have caused it. Bring on the day you have announced so that they may become like me. Let all their wickedness come before you and deal with them as you have dealt with me because of all my transgressions. 
for my groans are many, and I am sick at heart. Let's pray. Lord, I just thank you for uh, this time. Lord, I thank you for the truth of your words. Lord, I'm thankful that you give us words like we just read. Lord, words that show the, the pain of life, words that show the consequences for sin. Lord, because it helps us understand the realities of life. Lord, they are hard words to hear. They are dark words to hear. Lord, but ultimately those are words that need to bring us peace and need to bring us comfort. Lord, your word is truth. Lord, and your word is going to do exactly what you want it to do. Lord, it's my prayer this morning that we would, we would see and hear your word, that we would understand the realities of sin, the realities of the brokenness of this world, the realities of the consequences of sin, and that we would see your holiness, and that we'd, we would see you as being good and just and right that we would walk out of this place and walk out of our time this morning knowing you better and loving you more and understanding who we are as a people and who you are as our God. And I pray this all in your name. Amen. So to set a little bit of a framework here, I want to talk about Lamentations, um, the book in general, and then we'll get specifically into um, our text this morning. And, and first of all, I want you to know that I am preaching out of the CSB Bible, not the ESV. Um, and the reason why is because I think the, the CSB reads a little bit easier. Lamentations is poetry. Um, the ESV is a good translation. Um, don't hear me say that it's not, but it can be sometimes very kind of wooden because it's more literal, and so I've, I've moved to the CSB for these next few weeks as we work through the book of Lamentations to hopefully make it easier to, to read and easier to hear. Hebrew poetry is known for being um, very concise and very blunt, and so even as I was reading Lamentations 1, I hope you, you could feel that, and, and some of the language um, was very blunt and very direct. Um, it's, it's known for using a lot of me metaphor and being very figurative. Um, in Lamentations, there are actually three speakers. You're going to hear the narrator, um, the city actually speaks, Jerusalem will actually speak, and then as we get into Lamentations 3 and 4, um, the people will speak. And uh, you've probably noticed, as I read, that there is personification. Um, the author of Lamentations, who I believe is Jeremiah, um, makes the city of Jerusalem human. Um, the city of Jerusalem has emotion and has, and has feelings, and it's, it's referenced as being her. It, it, there's always a female perspective to that, and that makes us feel the weight of what's happened to that city. Right? It's, it's one thing to say the city was destroyed. It's another thing to say that she was destroyed. It makes it personal. It brings it closer to home. Now, the first word um, in the book of Lamentations, how, actually is the title of the book in the Hebrew Bible. And it's meant to read both as a, a question and, and as a shocking statement. And it's to grab attention. If we think about it this way, it would be like saying at uh, this day and age, wait, what? Like, how did this happen? Explain this to me. So it's meant to, to get our attention. It's meant to be shocking and alarming. And the background of all of this can be found in 2 Kings chapter 24 and 25 and 2 Chronicles 36 and Jeremiah 52. And so the, the setting of this is the destruction of Jerusalem in 587 B.C. Um, by the Babylonian Empire, a King Nebuchadnezzar specifically. 
Um, there was an 18-month siege around the city where they basically blocked off the city from anybody coming and going. And after those 18 months, the city was taken, the temple was taken. It was looted, it was destroyed. There was death. People were taken into exile, into slavery. People tried to flee and they were cut down and they were killed. The city and the nation and the people were devastated. Lamentations is an acrostic. Lamentations chapter 1 is an acrostic. And so there are 22 verses in Lamentations 1, and there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. And so each letter of the first line of those verses starts with a letter in the Hebrew alphabet. So it starts with the letter Aleph and ends with the in verse 1, and in verse 22, it's Tav. And so that's A to Z, if you will, in the Hebrew alphabet. And it was done this way. Um, again, it's poetry, and so there's going to be some real tight structure here. But it was done this, but done this way, written this way, to help. It's a memory device. It was helped the people to remember better what had happened. Right? It was to, to show the full expression of grief that the city and the people were experiencing. It was from A to Z, if you will. And it was to help put some constraints on the lament to keep it very tight and structured and not kind of wander off and go down rabbit trails. The reality is that the, the human suffering is inevitable and human suffering is inexplicable. And what I mean by this is that it's inevitable because of sin. And I want you to, to feel that this morning. And even, even Jeremiah, as he's writing this, the, the, the city recognizes the sin, right? Suffering is sinful. And it is because of sin. Suffering is not sinful. It's a result of sin. And it is inevitable. We live in a broken, sinful world. We get this from Genesis chapter 3. But suffering is also inexplicable in the sense that God's plans and God's ways are unsearchable. And so it brings some tension. It's unavoidable and it's unexplainable and we live within this tension. <laughs> and so the scene is set in verses 1 through 7 of Lamentations number 1. And the, the narrator now is speaking that the narrator makes Jerusalem right human and makes, the, makes Jerusalem a, a her, makes her a person. So we can feel the pain and the agony that Jerusalem is feeling. The city is broken. The city is alone. The city is, is crying. There are tears on the cheeks of the city. There is, there is no comfort. There is no relief. The city has been betrayed by friends, and actually those friends have become her enemies. She is in captivity, but she's also in exile. She's been scattered among the nations. The people are no longer living there. The people that have survived the Babylonian uh, siege are no longer there. They are out in other parts of the world. They are scattered among the nations. There is no rest. There is no peace. Right? The people made attempts to flee, but that turned out to be futile. They were taken by their enemies or they were cut down and killed the roads that were once crowded, the people that would once gather for festivals and for celebrations are gone. The city's empty. The priests are groaning, right, because the temple has been destroyed. That was the center of their life. That was what they knew. So that, that part of their life is now gone. That activity is gone. The young women realize that their opportunity for, for marriage and family is in jeopardy. 
the Babylonians would have killed all the males, um, older male men. And so they, these, these women realize that their opportunity now to have a family and to be married is really, really limited. And the city is sick inside with the reality of the situation. She herself is bitter, says the end of verse 4. And in verse 5, we read that the, the enemy hasn't just won, but the enemy's prospered. Their life is at ease. God appears to be blessing the enemy and not blessing his, his chosen people and, and who live in his beloved city, the city that now has been destroyed. The enemies are prevailing. The enemies are prospering. But the Lord has made her suffer. Don't miss that, right? Because here's the tension, right? Jeremiah is talking about the brokenness of the city and the pain and suffering in the city, and he has no issue identifying God as being the one who's ultimately behind what is happening, who's ultimately behind the suffering and the pain and the destruction and the hardship that the people are experiencing. But it's being done because of her many transgressions. So there's this suffering and this pain and this, this grief and this sorrow is because of sin. And you think about the people in the city and you think about there are probably people in that city who were heeding the warnings of the prophets, who were listening to Jeremiah, who were trying to be faithful and who were praying for repentance, right? But it, it doesn't matter, right? As faithful as they were, they're still experiencing the same pain and the same suffering. They were affected directly and significantly by the sin of others within that city and with the destruction of the city. <laughs> and so lamentation shows us that sometimes innocent people suffer the consequences of sin, and for us, it could be a cultural sin. It could be, it could be national sin, if you will, right? So sin is more than just an individual issue. Sin has a ripple effect. Other people are affected by sin, right? And so that's why people know and people can feel the brokenness of this world, the weight of this world. We see it in our culture. We see it in our nation, right? My sin, your sin, is not the only problem because our sin has a ripple effect and has many, many avenues to get out and to affect and impact other people. And sometimes innocent people will suffer the consequences of sin. Verses 6 through 7 tell us that the, the, the glory and the splendor of Jerusalem is gone. The leadership has diverted, deserted their posts. They were selfish. They were looking for food, and now they've been overtaken. And then there's this call to remember, right? During the days of her affliction and homelessness, Jerusalem, Jerusalem remembers all her precious blessings that were hers in the days of old. It's this, it's this call to, to remember the, the good old days, if you will, the days of God's blessing, the days of God's favor, the pain of remembering that, right? There, there is pain in remembering. There's a longing that we have. There's a seeking to, to recover what we can't really recover anymore because it's, it's in the past, it's, it's gone by. But with that remembering should, right, be used to awaken us to who God is 
and to who we are. It should help reframe us, our thinking, and should reorient us to understand better who we are and who God is. Because God did indeed bless his people. God did indeed bless the nation. God did indeed bless the city of Jerusalem. <laughs> so there's a call to remember, and that remember should refocus. In verses 8 through 14, we see, we see the cause for the situation, and the narrator is still speaking here. So Jeremiah is still speaking here, and he goes on, and he says that Jerusalem has fallen. Jerusalem finds itself in this situation because of sin. So this lament doesn't just talk about the realities of life now in the city, the realities of life for the people who have been taken into exile and the families who have been disrupted and scattered. It mourns the cause for all of this, and that cause is the sin issue of the people. We're told that the city has sinned grievously. Right? This isn't some cute, trite little matter. Right? It's grievous, and the city has become an object of scorn. The city is seen as being worthless. It's despicable. It's despised because of the grievous nature of the sin. And although we're not told specifically what that sin is, we know by reading passages like Second Chronicles 36 and Jeremiah chapter 2 and other Old Testament passages that the nation of Israel struggled mightily to follow after the gods and the practices of their nations that surrounded them, these pagan nations that surrounded them. And they were very quick to, to imitate the detestable practices of the pagan nations, right? whether it be you know, just worship practices and lewd acts and child sacrifice and sexual immorality morality, they, they followed these and they got swept up in these. Right? They defiled their temple. They chased after idols. They, con they pursued contentment in things other than God's. And God would send prophets and messengers to them to, to help to, to warn them and to, and to plead with them to, to, to repent and to turn back to him. And they despised them and they mocked them and they ridiculed those prophets. And sometimes they killed those prophets. They despised the word of God. They despised their gods. They committed adultery against God. The people of the nation had abandoned their God in worship, had abandoned their God in action, and abandoned God in their hearts. And that is a grievous, grievous Sin And now these people and the city has been exposed. When you read about seeing her nakedness and then she turns away, there's being exposed for who she truly is at heart and there's shame that she's feeling, the city's feeling for that and she turns away. And then the, the narrator, Jeremiah, ups the ante, if you will, to, to drive this point home. And he talks about, in verse 9, her uncleanness stains her skirts. Right? And that is just graphic, very blunt language, talking about the, the menstrual uncleanness that has soiled even her own clothes. And so it's just a picture of the sin and the consequences of the sin. The uncleanness is her sin, but then the soiling of her clothes shows the consequences. There is shame, and that shame is real, and it's obscene, and it is revolting, and it makes you want to throw up and, and vomit. 
And this gives us a glimpse of how a holy God views sin. He's holy. He cannot be in the presence of sin. He has to judge sin. Sin to him is revolting. Sin to him is obscene. And he has to act. But the consequences of that sin is very real for the people. The, the shame and the pollution and the isolation and the exposure and the misery and the, the hopelessness because they've been abandoned by their God because they are a sinful people and they have sinned grievously. And Jeremiah even goes on and says that they, they never considered her ends. They never considered the consequences of their action. They got so swept up in what they were doing and how they were living that they never stopped to pause and think about the effects that it would have for them. And these effects aren't just individual, right? It, it, it had an impact on the entire nation to the point where the national center of worship, their temple had been defiled and, and God allowed that to happen. Her adversary had seized all her precious belongings. She has even seen the nations enter her sanctuary. Those you had forbidden, you to enter your assembly. And so the narrator is showing God and saying that God has allowed this to happen. God has allowed his temple to be defiled. It is his action and is an action in judgment against the sin of the people. And the people are groaning. The people are searching for food and they're selling their possessions and their belongings, anything they can to, to, to get food and to stop themselves from starving and stop themselves from being Hungry, But then now there's a switch at the end of verse 11. And we read these words. Lord, look and see how I have become despised. And so now the city is speaking. The city of Jerusalem now is calling out to God for attention. The city of Jerusalem is going to plead with those who pass by to, to notice their situation and maybe to have compassion and recognize the desperate nature of where they find themselves and to affirm the seriousness of, of what's happening to them. Right, and that the suffering has been allowed because God, because of God's burning anger against sin. The suffering that they're feeling, the destruction of the city, the state of the city is because of God's righteous anger towards sin. So you need to feel the weight of the consequences of that sin, what they're experiencing because of God's holy, righteous anger towards sin. You think about the city of Jerusalem. You think about the just it was God's city. It was a city for his people. You think about David, a man after God's own heart who ruled there, who had such power and such prominence. And he was a, a military genius and he expanded the nation of Israel and it, God just blessed him immensely. And then after David, his son Solomon comes up, comes to power. And Solomon builds these, these great palaces and these, these gorgeous temples. And other rulers would come from other cities and other nations, right, to, to marvel at what Solomon had built. And there was such glory and splendor in the city. But God is willing to destroy it because of sin and because of the rebellion of his people. 
It shows us the, the seriousness to which God takes sin. And so the smoldering ruins of Jerusalem sends a message. Yes, God is long-suffering. Yes, God is patient, right? But rebellion against him, sin against him, has its consequences. And so we read about the fall of Jerusalem when we read about the sin and the consequences of that sin and we read about God's righteous anger towards sin, right? We, we see and we hear this reminder of the reality of sin, but yet God's holiness. Sin is that bad and God is that holy, Sin is that bad, and God is that holy. And so the city goes on in verse 14 and talks about how these transgressions have been, has been, have been a yoke now around their neck, and that that yoke is, is heavy, and they can't shake off that yoke, and it's, it's just around their necks, and they're crumbling under the weight of that yoke, and it is a yoke of sin, and it is a yoke of disobedience, and it's a yoke of rebellion against God, and it is defeating, and it is crushing. And as I was reading this and thinking through this, it made me think of Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 and 29. Where Jesus says these words, Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me, because I am lowly and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And what a contrast between the yoke of disobedience and sin and rebellion that the city was feeling and the weight of that compared to the, the yoke of obedience, the yoke of trust, the yoke of reliance on Jesus. His burden is light and he bears it with us. He gives us rest when we humbly leave our cares to God and we turn to him and we trust him and we, we turn from sin and we repent and we seek forgiveness. When we do those things, we will have rest. His burden is light. Paul goes on in Galatians chapter 5 verse 1. He says, for, for freedom, Christ set us free. Stand firm then and don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. The Galatian people, as Paul is writing to, were getting pulled back into the Old Testament law and it was becoming Jesus plus circumcision. And, and so he's arguing with them and pleading with them, don't go back into slavery. That yoke of slavery is heavy. You have freedom, the freedom that Christ gives. The burden is light and you will find rest. And that is the beauty of the gospel. Live in light of the gospel. Live in light of the power of the gospel. But the people of Jerusalem, the nation of Judah, right? they were experiencing the, the yoke of disobedience, the yoke of sin and rebellion, and it was weighing them down. And then starting in verse 15 through the end, there, there's this, this, this plea for mercy. There's this, this understanding and this recognition of what they have done, right? It is absolutely no mystery 
why Jerusalem finds itself in this situation. And it's God's doing and is in response to their sin and to their rebellion. The city is feeling divine rejection. They have lost the battle. They are cursed. They are, they are an object of scorn. They've been despised. They are weeping and there is no comfort. And verse 17, the narrator steps in. And he says that Zion stretches out her hands. That's the city of Jerusalem stretched out their hand. And there was no one to comfort her. The Lord has issued a decree against Jacob that his neighbors should be his adversaries. Jerusalem has become something impure among them. God has temporarily turned against his own people to the point where Jerusalem now has become something impure. And that word captures kind of three nuances, if you will, of impurity. It can be biological, if you will, uncleanness. Go back to, to verse 9, right? The uncleanness stains her skirts. It's ceremonial uncleanness. It's, it's moral impurity. It's idolatry. It's going after pursuing the things that are not God for comfort and for peace. And then there's a physical uncleanness in the sense of just being filthy and dirty. And you think about the destruction of a city and the desolation that takes place and the smoke and the dust and the filth and the dirt and the destruction. And you see that they has become something impure. It's a total, almost if you will, impurity from that standpoint. But then in verses 18 through the end, the city speaks again, and this marks a turning point, right? The, the facts have been presented, right? They, they, and they now are going to acknowledge, right, that God is just in what he's done. The city is going to acknowledge this, right? The Lord is just, for I have rebelled against his commands, Right? There is no doubt that the, 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 of the connection between the suffering and the, and the relationship to sin and their rebellion and God has warned them and they have paid no attention, but now he has their attention and he's gotten their attention through discipline and through destroying the city. And the city goes on, listen all you people, look at my pain, Right? Pay attention. God has gotten our attention. We need to pay attention. There's distress. There is churning within. The heart is broken. And all of that experience is because of their sin and the consequence of their sin and God having to judge them for their sin. And just when you think it maybe couldn't get any worse, we read in verse 21 that the people have heard me groaning, but there is no one to comfort me. All my enemies have heard of my misfortune. They are glad that you've caused it. So the, the watching world, these nations feel vindicated by what God has done to Jerusalem and to his people. They're glad that he's caused it. The enemies, enemies of God feel justified and feel vindicated and feel triumphant because of what God has done to his people. <laughs> and it's judgment for their sin. 
But then the lament ends in verse 22 with a plea for justice, with a plea for the, the, the scales to be balanced, for the sin and rebellion in the entire world to be dealt with. Right? Let all their wickedness come before you and deal with them as you have dealt with me because of all my transgressions, for my groans are many and I am sick at heart. The city recognizes the sin. The city recognizes the judgment that God has brought on them for that sin. And they're asking God now to judge these other nations who are sinful as well. So it's clear by reading Lamentations chapter 1 that we live in a broken world, that there are real consequences for our sin and for our rebellion, and that God is indeed a holy God and a just God. So what do we need to learn from Lamentations chapter 1? There's three things. Number one, that sin is the real problem. But when we look at trials, when we look at pain, and we look at suffering, right, Sometimes you experience that in direct relationship or in direct consequence to your own sin, right? But not all the time, not every time, right? Not every trial is because of a specific sin in your life. Sometimes it is and sometimes it's not, right? But it's a mistake and it is a dangerous mistake, to diminish the connection between sin and brokenness and sin and suffering. Genesis chapter 3 tells us this. Romans chapter 3, 23 says that for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6, 23 says that the wages of sin is death. Romans 8, 22 to 23 says that creation and, and humanity is groaning, right, as we wait for redemption. So there is a reality to sin and the brokenness and the suffering that we feel, that people feel in this world, and that sin has devastating consequences, Right? And God did not spare his own people and his beloved city from the consequences of sin. He is holy and just, and he must act. And so we have to be careful in our thinking. We have to be careful against thinking that because we don't see any immediate consequences, that there aren't going to be consequences. Right? God has to judge sin. He has to. He's holy and he's just and he's good and he's righteous. Paul warns the Galatian people in chapter 6 verse 7, right? Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. Right? If we don't believe that there's consequences for sin, if we live a ca in a cavalier way like that, we are mocking God. And Paul's saying, don't be deceived. You're not going to mock God. Right? You're going to reap what you sow. We all have sin in our lives. I have sin in my life. We all have it. Right? We are to root out that sin and we are to kill that sin. We need to 
deal with it. It is real, and the consequences are real. And so by God's grace, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we must recognize it, we must root it out, and we must kill it. So sin is the real problem. Number two, um, my sin and and suffering, that's not the only problem. Right? Pain and suffering can make us look in on ourselves. It can turn us in on ourselves and we become very self-focused. But sin is far more sweeping than just individual experiences. When I mentioned this earlier, right? There's, there's, there's a collective rebellion against God. And we see this right in our culture. We see this in our families. We see this in our cities. We see this in our nations. And we see this in our choices. Right, and that, that brokenness and that, that rebellion against God, it points to the problem, but it also points to the solution and it points to the gospel. Right? It should lead us to have compassion for what is wrong in our communities and in our towns and in our states and in our nation, in our world, not just in our life. And so lament is one way that our hearts can be tuned and, and turned toward, towards God's. And we can see God's perspective. So rather than being angry and fearful or apathetic or hopeless, right, we, we can lament. Well, we, we can watch and we can, we can listen and we can learn how to pray, right? Lament gives us eyes to, to see the brokenness that's in the world, the brokenness that is around us. It's a reminder that God is the only one and he's the only way to make that brokenness right and so it should give us a heart of compassion towards others. And number three, right, when we think about right, the realities of sin, when we think about the, the, the consequences of sin and we think about the, the holiness of God's, Right, it makes the forgiveness that we have through Jesus Christ mind-boggling and miraculous, and it should shake us to the core. We love talking about words like mercy and and redemption and forgiveness and grace, right? And and, and we should. Those are those are beautiful words, and they're so full of hope and encouragement, and they give us they give us life. But we also need to be reminded right, that there's something underneath those words. Right? Redemption's necessary and grace is amazing and we love forgiveness and it's, but it, all those are needed because of the reality of sin. Right? And the brokenness and the rebellion against God's in comparison to his holiness. So God's judgment is, is, is a reality to his story of redemption. He has to judge sin. He is holy. And so we start understanding the depth of our sin, right, and his holiness. It makes the cross big. It makes the cross huge, right? It should light up our eyes and we should be encouraged, right, because the cross of Jesus Christ was necessary because of our sin and because of God's Holiness, and we've experienced the power of the gospel in our lives, and we should that should cause us to to pause and to and to to shudder a little bit when we see the reality of sin and God's holiness. 
Right? We've experienced redemption because of our sin. And that was the only way that we could be redeemed was for God to send his son to this earth to live that perfect sinless life and to bear the weight of our sin and to take the wrath of God upon him for that sin while he was on the cross. He took the divine judgment that we deserved for our sin so we would not have to, so that we could be redeemed, that we could receive the mercy and the grace and the forgiveness from God. Christ took that upon himself. There's the reality of the sin and the brokenness of this world, and there's the reality of God's holiness, and we have been saved from that judgment for sin because of Christ. And it is miraculous, and it is amazing. But may we never forget the reality of sin May we understand the consequences of our sin. May we want to kill our sin and root it out. May we be broken by the sin that we see in the world, that we see in our communities and that we see in our neighborhoods. But may we glory in the beauty and the power of the gospel because we have been redeemed because of what Christ has done for us on the cross and taking the wrath and the judgment for our sin upon himself. May the gospel fuel our lives. May we rest in the beauty of the gospel and the power of the gospel, but may that same gospel propel us to deal with our sin and lament for our communities and be broken for our communities and want to be a people that shares the gospel and shares that hope with others. Let's pray. Lord, I just thank you for our time this morning. Lord, I thank you for the beauty of your word and the truth of your word. Lord, I thank you for the, the, the harshness at times of your word. Lord, we need to hear harsh words sometimes. We need to hear very blunt speech. And so when we read Lamentations 1, we hear those words. Lord, it's my prayer that those words have shaken us. Lord, that your word has shaken us. Maybe we've been feeling and living with a sense of complacency. Maybe we've been very kind of cavalier towards sin. Lord, may that not be so. Lord, may your word have shaken us and have stirred our hearts. Lord, may we see the realities of sin. May we see the realities of the brokenness and the consequences of that sin. But may we see your holiness. And when we see both of those clearer, cross and the gospel becomes large and looms large in our lives and it shows the beauty and the power of the gospel. May we live in light of the gospel and in light of your grace and your mercy and your redemption. And I pray this all in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Twin Villages Church in Damariscotta, Maine. Feel free to share this message with others, and for more information about Twin Villages Church, visit TwinVillagesChurch.org. Soli Deo Gloria.